Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 43. My name is Christopher Luff. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we speak with John Bagg, founder and CEO of Salem Cyber. Thanks for being on the show with us today, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. To get this started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, so my name's John Bagg. I'm co-founder of Salem Cyber, and Salem is a virtual cyber analyst platform. Our most prominent use case right now is alert prioritization. So we have Salem investigate alerts from SEMS and other kind of dedicated detection platforms and provide back the you know one, two, or three alerts that are most worth people's time. And then obviously, if we do that well, you can see a whole cascading set of positive outcomes that that can produce. But yeah, that's what we do. And you're leveraging artificial intelligence or machine learning on the back end for solving this problem? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a bunch of different types of algorithms. I've decided I like the word algorithm the best because it comes with the the least amount of reaction. Because I feel like the more I talk about the pros and cons of AI within the, like the context of our own platform, like the further and further we get away from our messaging. And so just sometimes staying out of the weeds is is the best place for us. For sure. And I guess with all the sort of marketing hype around AI right now, it's a very loaded term and almost makes people suspicious when they come to look at your product. Yeah. Well, it you know, and it's it's been such an interesting transition over the past, I'll call it six months um, for very obvious reasons. But in cyber in particular, you know, if you were at RSA 22 or 21, really, everything was AI enabled and people just grew to like hate that because they didn't see any value. You know, they, um, some of the, you know, early ML like detection platforms, um, were just not really meeting the promise. And so we were getting a lot of just like, Ugh, don't tell me you have AI until like chat GPT comes out. Now everybody wants to talk about it again. So <laughs> like, we're, we're definitely still in the upswing of the, of the next hype cycle. Right. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, zero trust is a, a great architectural model and in way to secure things, but it's almost like a four letter word now because it's been sort of beaten to death by the marketers and the promises. Yeah, yeah. And nobody can sell you zero trust, right? And that's that's the funny thing. They want to tell you about it all day, but but it's a concept, not a thing you can buy. All right. So I'm always interested to hear how people came into their career in technology. When did you first start playing around with computers and what was the thing that drove you to do it? Yeah. Um, maybe a different answer than you're typically used to getting. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the expression imposter syndrome, but I talk to people all the time who say like, you know, when I was you know, three years old, I was hacking the, you know, NSA over the telephone and all sorts <laughs> of stuff. And I just wasn't that person. I I had a fascination with like consumer technology, like I have a fascination with cars, but you know, when I went to college, I hadn't really built a computer or done anything. I remember my first engineering class, it was a coding component and it was like, you know, calling it a foreign language what wouldn't do justice to like my reaction to what I was looking at. I just like had no exposure and yeah, it's like I, I got a degree in electrical engineering. You know, the hardware stuff was very fascinating. But honestly, I was a pretty poor, disengaged student. So I kind of took the job I could get. 
Um, and that was at, uh, at Verizon and, you know, was a network engineer for five minutes and decided that wasn't going to be my, my career path and found a opportunity on a cyber project. And it was kind of, um, like NetFlow analysis in Splunk and nobody wanted to do the job. And I was just willing to take anything. And it, a funny thing happened. It's, uh, you know, a person I met later in my career, like to say every person has a superpower. And I think that kind of like analytical thinking and use of kind of, you know, light command language unlocked this like creativity and curiosity that I hadn't really experienced much of. And I I fell in love with it. And it was something that I just became really, really proficient at. And that kind of launched my my cyber career. Very cool. And you spent some time at Verizon. And then I think it was Booz Allen before you yeah. started Salem Cyber. Yeah. Uh, Booz Allen was great. I, um, I think that's where, you know, the gas was poured on the fire, you know, the, the type of opportunity that you get with a consulting firm, it just so aligned with what it turned out I was good at. And yeah, so spent five years there doing all sorts of basically like big data implementations for, you know, Fortune 500 type companies and such. And then for some reason, a little over a year ago, you decided to throw away the security that comes with a high paying career in tech and start a cybersecurity startup company and all the risks that come with that. What made you decide to do that? Yeah. So I don't know. I don't see it as a risk so much. I know that obviously, you know, you go from a a good paying job to a job that doesn't pay you anything, right? In fact, is costing me money, um, which I think some (laughs) people would describe as a hobby. But, you know, I I had a friend in high school who had a job at Best Buy. And like when he would pick up overtime shifts, he was making something like $35 an hour. And we were just like so enamored with that level of money, right? Like we didn't have any responsibilities or, or bills or anything. And so it was just like, Oh my goodness. Um, but over time, what I observed is that person limited what they did next because they were very comfortable in the opportunity that they had. And what ended up happening is they missed that next step and they never made it kind of as far as the rest of the cohort of us. And, you know, I, I kind of, for some reason, really internalized that moment. And I see it now, like in, in the industry here and you see um, people talk about like the golden handcuffs, right? You go work for Meta or Amazon or something like that, or, or one of these other big companies. And you've got these big like equity packages and cash packages, but you don't feel like you can go anywhere. And I, I don't like to feel trapped and that makes me feel like uncomfortable, even though it's a lot of money. Like to me, I've always chased the opportunity to be able to do something more and bigger and and better. And so for me, this was the ultimate, right? Like there's, there's no hiding, there's no, there's nothing in my way in terms of, you know, the directions I can go and the experiences I can gain. So this to me was the ultimate opportunity. And, and, you know, it's been almost two years now and rarely ever do I have even an inkling that this wasn't the right path. Yeah. 
That's great. And I can tell you, you can't put the tiger back in the cage. I've been through this a few times. And the thought of, you know, a regular position within a stable company where the outcome is very predictable, just uh, it's not something I can comprehend anymore. So welcome to the new life, I guess. Yeah, yeah hopefully, hopefully it all works out, right? Um, I could definitely go back. But yeah, to your point, it's, it's such an awesome experience. And once you get over that hurdle of, you know, convincing yourself and the people who care about you that it's uh, a worthwhile endeavor, you know, uh, it's just, yeah, it's great. So the reason I asked you on the show today is because I wanted to talk about AI and machine learning at a high level and then dive into how it specifically pertains to cybersecurity a little. Mm -hmm. Do you see a difference between AI and machine learning when those terms are thrown around? And if so, can you define the difference for us? So I think technically speaking, machine learning is a discipline of AI, or, or maybe I have that backwards. Like if you wanted to be like very academic about it, AI has a a marketing or brand branding problem, maybe in some cases, or just has a bigger brand. And I think it has to do with the word intelligence. I think people have a very emotional reaction to the word intelligence because we like to think of ourselves as the only intelligent thing. And that's what um, I think drives both the interest and the skepticism and the, you know, all of the other emotions associated with AI. But the two things are, are, are kind of linked, right? Generally, I think of machine learning as, you know, maybe older approaches to or, or more basic approaches to like classification and stuff like that. And now all of a sudden AI has come to meant like generative and, um, you know, people are trying to push around the, the concept of, of general intelligence um, and these language models that have captured everybody's attention, that's kind of what I think most people would now assume is associated with artificial intelligence. Is it a generally accurate statement when I say that most of the AI learning that we see today is not actually something that would be akin to cognition, but more like systems built to find statistical best fit of a small piece of data onto a much larger set of data? Maybe, you know, I, I think there's a, a philosophical question about what, what even is cognition. But when you really break down these models, you can think of them as a really long, like algebraic equation, um, like parameters. And there's like billions of parameters, right? And each word provided to these models is one of those parameters. And basically, you solve the equation. So in their, their root case, all of these models are deterministic, meaning if you give it the same input, you would get the same output. And I think that really highlights the, you know, to your point, it's, it's kind of just like a, either like a mathematical model or um, some type of, you know, learned system that, that can reproduce based on what it's seen before. And that, to me, is is not cognition, though I won't claim to to be an expert in what constitutes cognition. But I think when you get down to the root level and you and you turn these things back into their deterministic mode, the veil is kind of lifted a little bit, and you say like, "Oh, maybe this thing is is significantly less clever than I thought it was." So I, I would definitely separate the two. 
Are there other widely used approaches that don't involve large training sets? Or is it all kind of based on this concept of a model? Well, there's a couple of things in there. So uh, generally speaking, you need a lot of data to train any of these models. And, and what constitutes a lot can differ. You know, I think the training set for GPT-4 was, you know, several hundred gigs of scraped web data and, and other sorts of things. And the model itself is, you know, relatively about that large on, on disk. One of the things, though, that I think a, a, a lot about is there's the model itself, and then there's kind of that application layer that sits on top of the model. Um, and so if you look at GPT 3.5 or 4, that model underpins several applications. So like ChatGPT and Bing Chat are both foundationally the same model, but the user experience is very different. And I don't know that that actually comes across to a lot of people, that there's like this model that understands language and because it's consumed a lot of human text, it like natively can make these associations. But you can have a very widely different experience interacting with the same models on like a different application front end, depending on how that application is set up to leverage the inferences produced by that model. Yeah, and the model is almost compiled in a sense then, right? So we collect all this data. The data has to be classified because just raw data without context doesn't allow us to make any decision-making components in there. And then we compile it down into this thing that an application can interact with as a, called a model. Yeah, yeah, mostly. I think these models have just, you know, as far as I know, the level of normalization on the data that that goes in is relatively light. It just kind of consumes everything and then infers associations based on just complete repetition of of what it's seen. And then what they do on the back end once the model is like first compiled is this type of like reinforcement learning where they ask it things or try to get it to generate a response and then correct what it came back with. And so it continues to learn after the initial compiling is done based on this feedback learning process. So in a sense, it can get stronger or um, more fine-tuned, if you will, over time. Kind of like a weighted graph mm -hmm. within the associations that are created through the initial process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. It reminds me of... Uh, second and third year computer science courses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the concepts aren't uh, so difficult. It's just the scale of these things is, is so immense. And, you know, sometimes people say like, well, we don't even really understand how they work. I think really what they mean is we're just very surprised that they work so well. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I can't remember who the quote was attributed to, but I read somewhere that many researchers have found a religion in the belief that scale is all you need to make these models be as intelligent as we need them to be to solve these problems. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I also heard recently Sam Altman say the era of like large is over. And I think what he was referring to 
is that like the next frontier is actually shrinking the size of these models. And, you know, if, if you go back to like the math uh, analogy, basically, you know, reducing the equation down to a more simplistic form. And there's a lot of benefits. If you can do that, you can potentially have much cheaper use of those models and the as they get cheaper to use, then you can push them closer to the edge, if you will. So you don't need these huge servers running centrally to manage all of the invocations you can, or inferences, you can deploy these models out. And maybe one day you can even, you know, run some of this stuff like directly on, on a phone, which introduces like a lot of interesting possibilities. But I, I think, and I heard somebody say on a different podcast that, you know, the models are roughly about the same size or, you know, within an order of magnitude of the volume of training data that goes in. And that just signals to me that they have basically, you know, coded in all of the things that they've seen in this you know, scale of parameters that, you know, hits that large number problem that we can't even comprehend. But there's probably, you know, maybe orders of magnitude inefficiency in that approach. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity to not only improve iteratively like their performance, but also make them much more compact and, and that'll unlock a lot like the next layer of potential applications. So what you're saying is my suspicion that it's all a giant if-else statement is actually close to the mark? It literally is that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The biggest thing that changed, right? So like this type of model, it's, uh, you know, at its core, it's like a neural network, which is some people think kind of mimics the process of the brain. But they've been around for a long time. Basically, the the thing that's happened is that they've gotten much better at um, selecting which portion of like the input is relevant to the next output that needs to be created. So like basically they now have better memory. But like foundationally, these models are, are pretty simplistic. It's very simple, you know, ones and zeros, if else, like very simple equations. There's, there's not a lot of mystery to them. It's just a lot of little components added together. Without going into more esoteric approaches today, if I want to solve a problem using AI or machine learning, I'd want to build a model. And in order to build that model, I'd need a lot of data that could be classified into different categories. Like it is not enough to have a bunch of pictures to build an AI that would determine the difference between a cat and a dog. I would need a bunch of pictures that have metadata that says whether they are a cat or dog or other. Is that correct? It is. Yes, it is. Um, so you would need to tell the model, um, basically, you would give it inputs and expected outputs, and then it would learn the characteristics of, you know, that picture that means it's a dog or a cat or something else. I think we're getting to the place, though, with these generalized models, and that's kind of what the GPT models are. I believe the G stands for generalized where most people won't even create their own model anymore. They'll leverage a generalized model and then take, you know, a 
a different type of strategy on the back end to add in or incorporate their own information. And I think a really great example of that, if you look at Google Bard, which is in like experiment phase right now, it incorporates Google search results. So you have this model that was trained, you know, whenever, I don't know exactly when, when their training data set closed, but you know, earlier I asked it, you know, who is Salem Cyber? And it gave me a little bit of information. And then it also gave me, you know, information on how much money we raised, which was like accurate to a filing we made last month. Um, oh, wow. And so what it's doing is basically I give it a prompt. And this is a little bit of, of guess, right? I don't work for Google, but you give it a prompt. They basically Google search that prompt and then it comes back with some information and then it takes that entire package and gives it to the language model. Like, here's some background information about a question I'm about to ask you and then ask the question. And in that way, you're able to take advantage of all this training work that somebody else has done. You know, it costs like $100 million to train, you know, the, these biggest models. But you can just seed a interaction with a little bit of your custom information and then be able to leverage this generalized model to get the response that you're looking for. So I think in a lot of ways, it's going to democratize the ability to participate in a real way with these AI models, because if you can find a way to use the generalized version, then you don't have to have like the knowledge and go through like the time and expense to actually train something yourself. Oh, that's really interesting. And that was kind of one of my other questions I had here was that you know, because it's so computationally intensive to produce these models, they're kind of stuck at a point in time. There's no way to like add new information in real time to the model. But I guess what you just put forward makes a lot of sense where I can Google something on the internet, get very up to date information, and then push it into the model as part of the prompt to get the response back. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And there's, there's already like other services that exist one of them that I know about is called Pinecone, which is a type of vector database. In effect, it stores a lot of information and then you can do like keyword search. And so you can pull out like segments of that information and then seed a conversation with the, um, with the AI and then get your question answered about, you know, whatever information it didn't have before, but basically you gave it some background, then you can ask a question. I think some use cases that I've heard about kind of in that same vein is like, if you have, um, let's say you have like a contract, like a legal contract, it might be, you know, 10 or 20 pages or something like that. You could give that to a language model and say, I have this contract, here it is. And then you could then ask questions about it. And it would then summarize information and kind of pull out pieces of information all around, you know, that document, plus other things it knows, not only about like, you know, human language, but other data sets that it's been trained on. And I think that's really cool, you know, it, it, not to to go like too off, too far off base, but like one of the use cases that I think about that would be really fascinating is to have a like paralegal AI, like plugin, like all the law and like case laws, all like in the public domain. If you wanted to find that information, like right now, you'd have to hire somebody who either knows or knows how to do the research. But, you know, you can 
create an application that pulls in, looks for relevant information, pulls it in the language model, and then asks the language model to summarize or perform other kind of legal tasks for you. Uh, otherwise, you know, the the UNIs of the world wouldn't be able to access that information. And I think it it's a real potential like playing field leveler. Yeah, that's a super interesting use case. Like I can already think of a ton of applications where that makes sense you know if i'm a renter and i'm having some kind of dispute with my landlord and i don't have the financial backing to go hire a lawyer just knowing whether or not something's legal i could ask in a plain language Mm -hmm. and get a result back from that model yeah i've also found it very useful to summarize things i think uh, sisa put out a big report a few months ago and i put it into chat gpt and asked for a summarization and i got you know 10 bullet points of the key takeaways so yeah i think that's that's a really cool thing. The summarization, that's going to be the stuff that we see the f- like the soonest from these types of AIs within cyber. So like uh, if you have a threat intelligence platform and you want to know something about, you know, some intelligence or some threat actor group, the models are going to be able to pull in, you know, a whole corpus of relevant information regarding, you know, threats to a particular platform or, you know, activity executed by a particular threat actor group and provide you a synthesis and potentially recommendations of what to do, which is going to make a lot of people a lot more contextually aware. Threat intelligence is a, is a funny game, right? Like there's a lot of information, you know, it's, it's point in time information. It's, it's kind of hard to keep track of. It's very hard to operationalize well, but these models can solve a lot of that problem for you by basically being, you know, incredibly contextually aware and then providing you like very specific, you know, actionable outcomes to, to follow. So kind of just following on from that, CISA, I think, you know, most of the the tips, uh, threat intelligence platforms, you'll probably start seeing these, you know, powered by slogans and, and stuff uh, popping yeah, up. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I've used it personally, too, to just uh, get a quick understanding of what a complex detection rule does and stuff like that. And it's been great at just, you know, turning something that a human can do, but it takes a little bit of mental effort and some time and, and turns it around in a couple of minutes. So definitely a great augmentation tool. I don't know if we're ready to replace analysts with it yet, but um, well, you know what's, it's giving them superpowers. Yeah. I, and I love that word superpowers. What I have noticed, and this is my personal experience, it seems to do a much better job simplifying than it does complexifying is not a word, but like conceptually, like going the other direction, (laughs) like taking like a very opaque detection rule and giving you a sense of what it does versus creating a very uh, specific detection rule that can handle a myriad of edge cases um, and kind of that like creative element that a really good detection engineer would have to think through based on, you know, all of the potential things that that could occur in their environment. With the rate of progression, do you think there's a time on the horizon where AI takes over all of the cybersecurity functions for an organization, or will it be augmenting humans for the foreseeable future? I think we're going to be augmenting for the foreseeable future. I've definitely heard some proclamations that people are going to be out of the sock. There's a very 
I would call it famous, although I was in the room, so I don't know how famous it was. Um, <laughs> proclamation by you know uh, the founder and CEO of big cyber company that you know in five years, like nobody's going to be in the sock anymore. Like the machines are going to replace people in the sock. And I always felt like that was a very naive statement. Maybe, you know, maybe that's true in the knock, right? Where the uh, uh, indicators of success are very obvious, right? Is system working? Is system not working? In cyber, it's it's so much more difficult than that. Um, and this is the space that we operate in. So, you know, maybe some of my own bias will, will come out. But there's a level of intentionality that's so important in everything that we investigate within an environment. And that intentionality information and other kind of relevant, like, why would this be happening information is often either like learned and just internalized or shared amongst people and in, in like an oral history of like, oh, yeah, that's OK, because blah, blah, blah. And as long as that is true, and that's a very like IT, you know, problem, right? Like how we're using data, data and systems and kind of the cleanliness and the hygiene associated with that, which is always difficult to manage. As long as that is true, it's difficult for me to see how machines would replace the function of people, especially in those moments of why is this relevant to me? Because the types of information you need to make that assessment don't necessarily exist in the data domain. And so what we're doing is we're trying to create like a human machine interface so that the machine can get information from people and create that last mile. But without the person on the other side of the phone, you know, you're just going to basically be able to do the same thing that detection tools today do, which is, well, this could be bad if, you know, these other things are true. Right. But that context that's not so easily captured directly in the data is very important in making those decisions. Um, besides the very exciting work that Salem Cyber is doing, are you aware of any other companies doing interesting AI work in cybersecurity? I mentioned the, uh, the tip piece earlier, the threat intelligence piece. I think that, to me, that's from what I've observed, maybe some of the most interesting. You also have Microsoft announced Security Copilot and Google announced AI Workbench, which are basically like promises of bringing AI technology to cyber. But I think in a lot of ways, there's kind of a slate of things that were existing, right? Like we existed pre you know, this LLM revolution. And so there's kind of some stuff emerging that is not necessarily directly tied to this, uh, this hype cycle, but that for the stuff that is tied to this hype cycle, I think the answer is we just, we just don't know yet. I talked to uh, somebody uh, who's working on the security co-pilot project. Um, and you actually even heard this in their presentation when they originally announced it they are still figuring out what it can do. They're like, oh, I wonder if it can do this. I wonder if it can do that. So there's just a lot of discovery going on. And then the other challenge that exists is that there currently are a couple of companies that have access to these really powerful models. There's Microsoft, there's Google, there's Meta, 
and a couple of others, and they're not so ready to share those things out with anybody. And that really makes it difficult to incorporate the power of those models into a company's cyber portfolio because of the data privacy requirements. You know, I can't just hook chat GPT up to everything because I don't necessarily know what's happening with that information. And so I think that there's a couple of, there's a couple of next steps that have to happen in order for these things to, to fully get baked into the tools. There's got to be these kind of like enterprise ready private endpoints, these models coming um, and a couple of other, you know, dominoes that need to fall before we'll get a lot of the, the promised value Though I think it's coming, I'll, uh, as an aside, I'll say, you know, these models are eventually, in my opinion, going to become commoditized. Like somebody's going to release a really good one onto the world and then everybody's going to be off to the races with it, um, which will be, you know, either exciting or terrifying or both, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I I think we're still in in the earliest phases. But the last the last thing I'll say is, you know, the things that get me really excited especially in in cyber and kind of other industries that have this the same problem there's so much opportunity to do good work where people aren't today so i think there's this big fear that you see in some places about like ai is coming for your job but if you really thought about it you know if if your company had double the cyber staff that they had today there would still be things that they could that you wouldn't be able to get to because you don't have enough resources. And that is true across the entire industry. So if you doubled the entire workforce, I still think we would answer questions of, well, we just don't have people or we have to prioritize or something. There's just almost unlimited amount of good things that could be done. And that to me is, is a really exciting opportunity for AI, which has this, this scale and, and this, you know, ability to do these types of jobs that, you know, maybe people didn't even really want to be doing in the first place. And so that's what really gets me excited on the opportunity front. I'm hoping that we can be a portion of that story of the, you know, do more, do better and brought to you by AI. If someone out there has access to some interesting data and they want to build a model or AI solution, do you have any advice on where to start? Should they even bother trying to build their own model or is it better to, you know, like you had mentioned, use it as input into an existing model? It's a probably pretty complicated question. It depends on what you, what you're trying to achieve. So there's models that do all sorts of things. Um, the image generators and the text generators have captured everybody's fascinations. But there's also, you know, classifier models there. So you want to take a bunch of data in and you want to bucket, you know, what you think that thing is. So it a little bit depends on what you're trying to do. If you have enough data, it's not like, let's say you've got a million samples of some sort of data. Like that might be enough to create a model that can do a pretty good job at a specific task, especially if the if the task is narrow enough in output, uh, meaning like the types of predictions that it can meet, uh, make are, are pretty narrow. And it would be very cheap and easy to 
train that model. And in fact, you could go over to ChatGPT and get it to write you a little bit of code that will <laughs> that will train it for you and probably cost, I don't know, uh, with a million things, it probably cost you, you know, 20 bucks in compute time um, on Amazon or something like that. So I, I think there's very easy ways to step into it. But if I had some data, I would be playing with how do I get somebody else's model to understand the information I have and produce interesting outputs. And, you know, as long as that data is not sensitive, you can get going right now. And if it is a little sensitive, you might have to, to wait for, you know, some of these more enterprise grade endpoints to become available. But there's so much you can do with, you know, kind of the, the chat GPTs and the APIs and stuff like that, that I guess that's probably where, where I would, I would get started. And if you don't know totally how to to go, just ask the question to ChatGPT and write you a little script. It's <laughs> shockingly small. Um, it could be five to ten lines of code. We'll we'll get you there, and you'll be off to the races. Yeah. So this is the last question I have. It's the one I ask of everyone who comes on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Doesn't even have to be related to cybersecurity or AI. Do you have any predictions for the future? I still believe pretty strongly that, you know, the Miami Heat are going to win the Eastern Conference Finals uh, tonight. <laughs> I don't know if this will be very relevant by the time you, you publish this. I might look like, you know, a big idiot. Um, but, you know, I, I've got belief in, in playoff Jimmy. Um, yeah. And, you know, on the AI front, I think that there's a lot said about what could and and could not happen with AI. I think the truth with all these technologies is the biggest impacts are going to be different than anybody's really thinking today, right? And it's it's very unlikely, in my opinion, to be cataclysmic. And it's very unlikely to be utopian, right? There's going to be just some weird other bucket that we look back and go, huh, that's uh, that's what came of this. So... Just more boring dystopia. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> awesome, John. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. This was a fun one. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, take care. Bye. And that concludes episode number 43 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.